we finished chapter 2, which was a chapter dealing with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which was a preview of the Gentile world powers that are going to dominate the world's landscape until the second coming of Christ, which was the rock that was cut without hands. And so this statue, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and the interpretation that Daniel gave him showed that very thing from the time of Babylon, number one here, to two, the Medes, the Persians, three was Greece, the fourth image of the legs and the feet were of uh, iron was, was Rome, and then a revived Rome right here, and then right here the rock that was cut from the mountain without hands. The world's powers dominating all the way until Christ's return when he will ultimately smash all the powers of men and completely remove them and it will grow into his kingdom, what says is a kingdom that will endure forever and uh, will grow into the entirety of the world like a strong, mighty mountain. And that's what we saw in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, as we move into chapter 3, it picks up off of that theme very strongly. We once again are going to see Nebuchadnezzar in a large statue. But this time the statue isn't going to be a thing of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but instead the product of his desires. And instead of a statue as with just a head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar makes the entire statue out of gold. Now, the time of the events in chapter 3, while not stated clearly in the text, not stated at all, we know from the translators of the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is just simply a translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language. Uh, Septuagint simply means 70. It was translated by 70 individuals. 70 men were a part of the translation, so they called it the 70, the Septuagint. Nothing fancy, just simple and straightforward. And this translation committee, when they were translating the Septuagint, also made notes while making their translation. And in their note-taking, along with the Septuagint, in those notes, it connects the events of Daniel chapter 3 with the destruction of Jerusalem um, in, that we see in 2 Kings 25, verses 8 through 10 which places the event of chapter 3 in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, 19th year of, of his kingship, which would be about 15 or 16 years removed from the events of Daniel chapter 2, if indeed the uh, timing of that is a correct timing. Again, we don't know precisely and can't know for certain if those events connect or not. But I do find it interesting, and so I want to read to you 2 Kings 25, 8 through 12. It says, now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. 
Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So if the translators of the Septuagint were correct in connecting the events of Daniel 3 with the destruction of Jerusalem, it would seem that Nebuchadnezzar not only threw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into a fiery furnace, it would also seem that his rage led him to the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the tearing down of the wall. As a result, perhaps, of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's unwillingness to bow down and worship the image of man, which was the image of gold. Nebuchadnezzar putting himself up in the plains of Dura as being a god himself, it seems. But one thing that is certain is that both chapter 2 and 3 of Daniel both speak of a huge statue. It seems that being the head of gold literally went to Nebuchadnezzar's head. A little pun intended there. Now when we think of chapter 3, we think of Daniel's friends. And Daniel, we know, thought very highly of his three friends, didn't he? He valued these friends greatly. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have been standing with Daniel since their deportation in 605 B.C. When Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did the same. When Daniel went on a veggie diet, they did the same. When Daniel sought the Lord in prayer for the king's dream, they were there found praying with him. When Daniel was promoted by the king, Daniel immediately had them promoted in the king's court as well. And now Daniel is relating an event in which his three friends took a stand of faith against all odds. Now, we kind of say that phrase, against all odds, a little bit pejoratively, but I think we know what we mean, right? I mean, God's will will be accomplished 100%. So, when we say against all odds, it just simply means we don't know exactly what God's will is going to be in that moment. And we're going to see from the three friends. They don't pretend to know God's will in that moment, but they know who holds their lives and their future without question. Again, demonstrating the proven character of a life that is wholly devoted to God and to His Word and to His will and to His ways. This is, as they will be referred to here in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this word Dura here, set it up in the plain of Dura. This word simply means a walled place or an enclosed walling. So it's, it seems to be that the plain in which this large statue was set up perhaps had an enclosing of some sorts, and many say perhaps of some mountains perhaps that were surrounding the plain of Dura. We don't know definitively, but it somehow was given the plain of a walled-in place, the plain of Dura. And the statue itself, as we see here, is an enormous edifice that most believe 
being that it was on a plane, and during the day, let's say the sun is shining and hitting a very large statue of gold, the, the shining of the brilliance of this image, most believe perhaps could have been seen as far away as upwards of 12 to 13 miles in every direction. Again, we see that its height was 60 cubits, which translates for us 90 feet. And its width, 6 cubits, again translating to 9 feet. So 9 feet wide by 90 feet tall. This is an enormous statue. And we're going to see that it was a statue that's made of gold. Now, we don't know if it's entirety, if it was a solid chunk of gold, or if it was just covered over with gold. But no matter how you slice that, no matter how much you pour the gold on there, it's, it's a lot of gold. It's a very brilliant spectacle indeed. And we don't have, well, we have a little bit of proof of it in the text, but perhaps it's a little bit of um, gazing into some of this to have this notion. But I'm betting that the size of this statue had something to do with the size of Nebuchadnezzar's ego. Just a guess. It, it didn't say that in the text. And the size of the statue was in correlation to the size of Nebuchadnezzar's ego. No, it doesn't say that, but I have a pretty strong hunch, we'll just call it a, a gut feeling that that's probably true. And I mean, have you ever noticed how guys are like this? Have you ever, have you ever noticed how guys can do this kind of thing? I mean, like where, you know, the size of the truck we drive and its tires have something to do with kind of our personalities, we might say, right? Like, man, I'm driving this and it just feels like me. Anybody guilty? <laughs> we are. We all are. Now, ladies, I thought I was going to let you off the hook. No. Now, see, in correlation, now I'm actually not going to correlate this one. But listen, we all have this. And I think Nebuchadnezzar's ego was getting the best of him. He, built, he builds this very large, beautiful edifice, and he loves himself some me. I think it was Terrell Owens who said, I love me some me. Was that Terrell Owens? I think Nebuchadnezzar loved him some him. And I think this statue is a demonstrable uh, reality of that. And the logical implication following chapter 2 is the idea that Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the idea that Babylon the Great was going to be overthrown. I mean, I can imagine him thinking thoughts like, why should my greatness and my kingdom be seceded by other kingdoms? Having been given the, the dream and its interpretation from Daniel, given some time to consider and ponder the ways of that. Why should Babylon and my greatness, why shouldn't it last forever and be a, the mountain that fills the entirety of the world? I mean, ego has a way, sin has a way of, um, I think we call it in, in temporary insanity. And I think Nebuchadnezzar was living in a state of temporary insanity. So perhaps this is why Nebuchadnezzar made an entire statue out of gold, and perhaps this is his way of asserting his will over God's will, of what God had determined, of what God had foretold, of his way of perhaps trying to say, no, I'm not just the head of gold, I am golden, and he makes an entire statue of gold. And perhaps that's why this chapter has made its way into the good book here, because it was no small thing for the three Judean boys not to bow and worship his image. 
And again, if the translators of the Septuagint are correct, when he's filled with rage to throw them into the fiery furnace, he also sent his commanders and some armies to destroy the hometown, the, 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 the walls and the rest of the temple and the, the houses even, of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, almost to make a point that I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. So instead of repenting before God, the God of heaven, when he was told, you, O king, in chapter 235, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom of Babylon, the power, the strength, and the glory. Instead of repenting before this God of heaven, though it seemed he might have temporarily have done so, it seems that he did not learn that lesson for long. And as much as it depended on him, it seems that Babylon in his own greatness will be that which lasts forever. And it's a good reminder, I think, to all of us Though we are not Nebuchadnezzar and we are not in our, our life circumstances look nothing like this whatsoever. It's a good reminder to us that when we see and hear the revealed word of God as inscripturated and canonized in the text. That this becomes the, the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. And we look no other place. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's done perfectly in heaven, and we're desiring to have it done perfectly in, on earth through our lives. Amen? And the crowd that we see gathering in verse 2 gives us some insights, if you will, into the king's plan. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. So who set up this statue? The king, Nebuchadnezzar, had set up. And we see that it's a dedication of this image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. And so he assembles a crowd that's composed of all the officials, of all the known Babylonian government officials uh, spread out wherever they may be all throughout the province of Babylon they are to be in attendance at the dedication of this beautiful image of man and perhaps in Nebuchadnezzar's mind it imaged the very dream image that he had we don't know specifically but it clearly was that image that represented the power of man and perhaps of Nebuchadnezzar's desire himself to be the man all the time but as of yet, they don't know why they're there. Keep looking at verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here, once the crowd had all arrived for the planned dedication, the day came when they were assembled in the plain of Dur where the statue was, and all of these officials were guided to a location that says, before the image. Before the image. Then, verses 4 and 5, then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you, nations and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, 
lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. So here we see very clearly the purpose for which they have been brought to this dedication. It's for them to fall down, prostrate, prostrate, and to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has established. It's, it's a, a, a sign of, I believe, Nebuchadnezzar's authority over their lives and their complete subjugation to him. I think it's important to keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't trying to have a worship service. He wasn't trying to have some kind of a spiritual revival of some sorts. This wasn't like a key man's conference or something like this, though it was his key men. It seems more than likely that the falling down and the worshiping of the statue was more of a political move on his part that was intended to help his kingdom and his rule and his authority over all the people. And to let them know exactly how he felt about himself. But it's worth noting the use of the instruments in this context, in this desire of his for them to fall down and to worship his greatness, his rule. You see, rather than appealing to truth and to virtue, rather than Nebuchadnezzar giving a, a speech that was lauded with lofty and noble thoughts as to why they should follow his leadership and his, uh, his, his rule, instead of that, the, uh, the place is filled with the sound of music. It's more of an, um, an attraction to connect them at a level of, of their emotions, um, stirring them at that level and drawing them to a place of recognition that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of all kings. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar's pride at this point was so great, it seems that he was looking for a very elaborate celebratory praise of what I would call his own perceived greatness. So, we're going to see if, if, if you choose not to do this, if you choose not to fall to the ground and to worship the ground upon which Nebuchadnezzar walked on, you were literally toast. Notice verse 6. It says, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if you're against me, you will be killed on the spot. Loyalty. That's why it seems that it's more of a political play than any other, anything else. If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're against me, you're killed on the spot. Nebuchadnezzar is looking for loyal subjugation. And Interestingly, a little note bene here is when we get to chapter 7 of Daniel's vision, as we mentioned last week, rightly it seems that these kingdoms in chapter 7 are depicted as beasts. In the vision, Daniel sees Babylon as a lion. He sees Medo-Persia as a bear and Greece as a leopard and he sees Rome as a dragon. In the times of the Gentiles, these governments are viewed as animals, as beasts. And like beasts, they're full of power and full of wrath. And they are, in essence, lacking a moral conscience. These beasts have no sense of, of God and are full of rage, as we see Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar here and Daniel writing in verse 6. If you don't worship 
the image that I have erected, immediately death is on the line. We will throw you into a furnace blazing with fire. They have no sense of morality, no conscience, no sense of there being a God over whom and under whom they serve, over them and under whom they serve. Just like most human governments and most political systems that we have known all throughout time in human history that do not know God nor revere His Word. They are beast-like, extremely brutal, led by tyrants who make edicts similar to, not the same, but similar to what we see here in verse 6. We see this all around the world. Just do a little study of history. Well, most of those in attendance knew this about Nebuchadnezzar. Most of them probably at some point had lost a family member or a friend at the end of a Babylonian sword or knew someone who perhaps did. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar was not the nicest. Remember, it was early on in chapter 1, whenever, in chapter 2, whenever he said to his, his um, faithful Chaldeans and sorcerers and conjurers and magicians that if you cannot tell me what my dream was and its interpretation, I will tear you limb from limb and, and destroy your entire house, meaning your entire family. Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice guy that they were pals with. He was a tyrant and a very evil man indeed. And they knew this about Nebuchadnezzar. So notice verse 7. Therefore at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipes, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And this is typical of any people group who do not have a sure word from God. You're prone to do the whims of men who have power and authority. Here we see a willingness to bow down, to worship these, this idol of men, and even men themselves, Nebuchadnezzar. However, there just happened to be, at this gathering, three God-fearing Jewish boys in the crowd. Well, they might not be boys anymore if they were, again, kind of rolling with the Septuagint, if that dating was correct. If they came in at 14, and this was the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and they came in during his first year, and second year, and third year, they've grown up a little bit. So these are young men. But at that meeting, at that dedication, it seems there was at least three God-fearing Jewish young men that refused to bow and worship. They understood God's will concerning their participation in this ritual on the plain of Dura. And they understood God's will concerning their participation in the ritual on the plain of Dura because they knew the word of God. Another very strong and clear implication that we as God's people must know God's word in order to stand on it and to stand up for God when we find ourselves in a cultural surrounding that's calling us or asking us to do something that would be sinful against our God. We need to know the word of God. We saw this observation of these three young boys in chapter 1. It was the very thing that made the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so outstanding. 
was their faithful walk of obedience to the Word of God, come what may. We would say from New Testament language, from the book of James language, they were not hearers of the Word only. They were effectual doers of the Word first and foremost. Amen? Kind of using some of, borrowing some of James' language. We see here that they allowed the first two commandments to be a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, <clears throat> showing loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah stood out like a, as the old saying goes, like a sore thumb right out there on the plain of Dura. Amen? Might that be said of each and every one of us? Might we stand out like a sore thumb in this godless culture and society in which we live as we are heralders through our lives of the very truth of the Word of God? Let's never bow down to them or worship them. Ever. Ever. Come what may. And it's for this reason. Verse 8. For this reason. At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Three in particular we're going to find out. And the obvious reason they brought charges is due to the fact that these three individual young men didn't fall down and worship. This Hebrew word here for brought charges right here. Brought charges. Sounds serious to bring charges against somebody. The literal rending of this word is to devour the pieces of. It puts a little bit more grit to their growl and bite on their bark, if you will. They sought to devour these three young men to pieces. They loathed them. They, we see here that they are still loathing of these three Judean boys who, oh, along with Daniel, were the ones who were elevated in the king's court. Because somehow... Daniel and these three friends of his were able to give the, dr the dream and its interpretation favorably to the king. If you think about it, how should these Chaldeans have acted towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I'm thinking they should have been extremely thankful considering when we look back in chapter 2, it was these three along with Daniel who saved their lives. <laughs> these, are the, these are the young men. Talk about ingrates. I mean, that's the epitome, epitome of it right there. You saved my life about 18 to 19 years ago, but now I have an opportunity to take you down and to devour you and to crush you down. I'm, I'm taking opportunity to do that, which again says more about the heart of man, the depravity of man than anything, and we should take very astute awareness of that. Because whenever, it's interesting how some within Christendom, some within the church say we need to be friendly with the world and if we're friendly with the world, they're going to turn around and love us back. And by being friendly with them, it's going to help them receive the gospel message more and then they're going to be friendly towards us. I think it was Paul, 
who said, what does darkness have to do with light? What do Christ and Belial have in common? The answer is nothing. And here we see another similar example of the reality that unconverted hearts rage and rebel against converted hearts because ultimately they rage against the true God of heaven. I believe this is a small little example of how we see this. Notice their accusation from verse 9. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Now, have you ever heard the phrase brown noser? Just curious. I, I think that this might kind of fit the bill. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the same Nebuchadnezzar who sought to kill them and to destroy their families, tear them limb from limb and destroy their entire households. That nice guy. They responded and said to him, O king, live forever. O king, live forever. Listen, I don't believe that they cared a wit's end about the king, actually. All they're interested in is looking out for themselves. They're narcissists to the end, just like the rest of humanity is. And, use, and they will use whoever they can in order to promote their own greater well-being, just like the rest of humanity will. They are simply looking out for themselves, just like people in our day do as well. And Daniel, it seems, leaves us with a great contrast between the true people of God, those willing to put others' interests and needs ahead or on par with their own, in comparison with peoples of the world whose interest is purely in self-preservation. Self-interest. My relationship with you is a, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, but I'm hoping you scratch mine a little harder and longer. Kind of proposition. So after all the flattering words, perhaps lies, oh king, you're the man, we love you so much. We have something to tell you. You're really going to be interested in this news. Verses 10 through 12, you, O king, have made a decree. Remember the decree you made? That every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image as if Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that. They're kindly just bringing it to his attention again. O king, remember this little thing you did? But, verse 11, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration, the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And right there, verse 12 says it. There were certain Jews, namely, let's tell you exactly who they are. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And what were they doing? They're, this is, I love this. They're, they're accused of standing up for God. I like that. Do you know what kind of courage it takes? <laughs> Do you know the kind of courage it takes to stand up for God in a godless culture and society? I mean really stand. I mean stand in such a way where you're standing out. Like, 
like standing, like they didn't just kind of give it one of these numbers, like, hey, I'm, I'm not completely down. I'm, no, they're standing in a large plane as if a sore thumb. And I love that they're being accused for standing up for God. They knew their names. A great question, I think, corollary question and a little bit of a probing and prodding for us is who knows our name? As a result of standing up for God in a godless culture in which we live, who knows our name? Who could rightly accuse us for standing up for God and standing for morality and standing for right against wrong? In our culture. And we notice all the churches around seem to be what? Capitulating to the voice of the culture. And I say church loosely. I think you know what I mean. I, I love this. And let me tell you, I don't know about you, but you know we always say dare to be a Daniel. Listen, I'm like Ben it. Dare to be a Mishael and a Hananiah and an Azariah. Dare to stand up for God in your culture and have your name known as one of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Dare to do that. Come what may. And my hope and prayer is that you'll challenge yourself with the exact same thing. But now notice, I didn't say, I didn't say, go out there with a, bull, uh, you know, a bully club, billy club, and start whack-a-moling people to death because of their sin. Did they do that? I don't see them whack-a-mole anybody. I just see them standing up for God in a godless culture and convention that they were forced to come to. And I don't know, you may be forced to go to something where you work. I don't know, occasionally sometimes bosses require attendance at said corporate meetings and such. I don't know how that works. I have it easy, guys. When I go to a corporate meeting, I'm sitting with Royce and Nathan and Matt, and we're worshiping the God of, of the Bible, of heaven. I mean, I don't know in the world really in which you live. I've got it super simple, so I, I, I realize that, and I sometimes say it's the easy to say, the hard to do. I get that, Okay? But I still live in that world and I'm not of it. And so when I'm out there in that world, I want to be one with you. I want all of us to be Christ followers and His ambassadors standing up for God together. Amen? And this church is how we pray for each other. This is how we pray for one another. You feel the tension within your own chest from time to time and the struggle and the strain that it can be. And there's nothing new under the sun. That same st stress and strife that you feel when you're out there trying to stand up for God in a godless culture is the same stress that every single soul in this room feels when they're doing the same thing. And this is why we, all those one another passages we see in the New Testament Scripture, need an outlet for that. Here's my shameless plug for life groups. You need to be connected into a life group so that you can have friends like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel so that whenever hard times come, you have somebody that you can get on your knees with and pray to the God of heaven with, with and together with. Everybody's feeling that same stress, I promise you. And so this is why we carry one another's burdens and pray for each other. And I think it's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We forsake not our assembling together as is the habit of some, but we're encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. Why? 
Because it's difficult out there. As we know, the day of Christ is drawing near. And we confess today through the partaking of the Lord's table. He's coming again. We know the day of Christ is drawing near, so we need encouragement with the saints of God around the Word of God. And have you noticed whenever you read Scripture like this, it starts forming a solid spine and a backbone within you that says, man, I'm going to get out there and this is how I, I'm going to be the next Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. Are you feeling that? Man, I feel it. Because that's what theology does. It's a solid backbone that enables you to stand for the things that matter. Who knows your name? We need to have our names known. Amen? Man, I just realized it's 1130. Where am I at? Verse 10 and 11 and 12. I'm trying to get to 18, Royce. I'm in trouble, he said. <laughs> Absolutely. Let me peer down right here. I think I can stop right there. Okay, bear with me a few more minutes here. In Acts 19... It tells us that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. And it goes on to say in 19 verse 15 that some of the exorcists, they were they started trying to do some of the same things. It says in verse 15, and the, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Who are you? We need to be those who are known for standing up for God. Try one more time just to imagine that image on the plain of Dura in your mind. A big open plain with a ghastly looking golden statue. Sound of all kinds of music starts playing. Hundreds of individuals start falling to the ground around you in homage and there stood these three young men. It's a great picture of what it means to not fear men, to not have a fear of man, but a fear of God. Try to etch into your mind's eye as best you can an image of the plain of Dura with three godly men standing there, defying the king's order, in order to stand up for God and dare to be that individual yourself. We're going to pick up right here next week. There's some really good stuff that we can take with us before these three boys, young men, get thrown into a fiery furnace. Won't you pray with me?